Hey, we're going to be finishing up my favorite book today. I'm kind of mixed emotions there. I'm a little sad, the fact that we're finishing up Hebrews today. And uh, what, a, what a blessing to finish a book. We started this. Oh, my goodness. Let me, let me go back here. If you haven't been with us, I hope this doesn't discourage you because it doesn't discourage me one, one bit. Let me just go back to make sure I don't misquote this here. I always put a... We started this on... July 11th of last year, and we are just now finishing the book of Hebrews. Amen? Hey, who's rushing through the Word of God? We want to know the whole counsel of God. We want to know. We go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, and we continue faithfully go through the Word of God. And guess what? Next week you can get really excited because we move on to our new next book. But we won't get ahead of myself on that one. I'll get excited about the next book, too, you know. If you're here for the very first time, we welcome you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're just, what a blessing to have you with us here uh, in person as we study your word. I know you have your Bibles in hands, I'm sure. And if not, grab one behind the pew. We just want you to make sure you open up to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. We will be picking back up in verse 9 where we left off. Last week, let us pray. Father, again, we thank you and praise you for this day. What a blessing it is, Lord, that you have allowed us to be able to come here in person or online, but to be able to come and now make a very diligent, very purposed moment here to decide to sit and to listen with open ears, to hear from your Holy Spirit to move in a mighty way, to teach us your truths. Teach us the things that we need to hear and to apply to our lives, Lord. Because we don't do this just because it's a ritual. Absolutely not. We don't do this because we have to. Absolutely not. We do this because we get to come to sit at the feet of our Savior. And it's by the power of the Holy Spirit you are going to teach us all things that we need for our lives for this day. And the days even to come, Lord. Have your way with us. Have, us, have open ears to hear, but hearts soft enough to receive. In your precious name, Lord Jesus, amen, amen, amen. When we talked here at the very end of last week in uh, Hebrews chapter 13, we took a couple of verses 7 and 8 that really also part of the continuation here in verse 9 today. So let me read verses 7 and 8 to you as you follow along here. And then we'll go right into the new material of verses 9 all the way through to the end of verse 25. The writer to the believing Hebrews says, remember... We're going to see that key word, remember, and it's so important that we do remember the things that God shows us and speaks to us through his word. We must remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, we continue, as you understand, as the writer is writing this letter, this epistle, with his final words of this letter to these believers there, Hebrew believers, these, those who were Jewish and who gave their life over to Jesus Christ and now are born-again believers following Jesus, there were struggles, there was turmoil, there was a lot of conflict, a lot of persecutions for them leaving the Jewish faith and following Jesus. And so the writer throughout this is a, this whole Hebrews is a word of encouragement. And the final words of encouragement or exhortation is here in verse, or chapter 13. His final words in chapter 13 addresses the thought of a believer's mind who thinks you can live this Christian life and run this Christian race successfully alone and without Jesus. He's going to finalize this because many believers today, even back in those days when there was a struggle and persecution for your faith in Jesus and the struggles and the fact that you've been ousted out of your job or ousted out of families, you're not invited, you're kind of distanced, they all look at you like some, you're some Jesus freak and all these terminologies that happen. 
And then you have a tendency as a believer to go, okay, I don't, wanna, I don't want my old life to change that much, only the, the sin part, not the other part. And so what you do, you start compromising, and you think you can literally live this life as a Christian life alone. You don't have to get around other Christians. You can just live it alone. It's just being God. And, we can do it. and I can just live in the world, and it's not going to affect me. Uh, you, you try that for a little bit, I don't, don't recommend it. But we all try that in the very beginning and realize, oh, how desperate we need our brothers and sisters around us to live this life, a Christian life. You might get around some Christians, but then you have a tendency, people have a tendency, and this is what the writer's writing here, you can do it without Jesus. I, I know of Jesus, but I'm just going to go back and live the world like I always lived, like everyone else lives, so I can kind of blend in so that I don't stand out. Less of Jesus, more of what the world does. Oh, that's the most carnal living and most miserable life you'll ever experience as a Christian. So the writer here, as we saw in, in chapter 12, certainly, and in into 13, the writer reminds us to follow our spiritual leaders, those pastors that God raises up as a calling, as a gifting, as an ordination of, of someone who's living a life of faith, who's teaching you the word of God and demonstrating how to live that life. So don't, don't, lose, don't go looking at the world. Look at the people that I've, I've raised up and, and have gifted to be able to do these things to help and encourage you to continue this life that follows Jesus. Remember the faithful leaders who are now dead. Remember we went through the chapter 11, the faithful leaders of everyone who was living by faith from Abraham all the way through. They went through that. The writer reminds them of those in the past. Remember what they did and how they lived that life in a very difficult world. You need to do that too. And those who are still alive and teaching the word of God and are faithful to the word of God and, and, and keeps it simple and always focusing you on Christ. Keep, keep around those people. Watch and listen to them. You know, they're, they're there for you to help you in your life. Don't separate yourself from those people. Don't, don't go moving away from those spiritual leaders that I'm raising up to help you. Remember what they taught you, how they lived, and what they lived for. But remember, here the writer says in verse 8 of Hebrews 13, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. What they're teaching you is a Savior who never changes. The culture changes. The culture changes. But Jesus, our Savior, does not. God Almighty in the flesh does not change regardless of how much you wish he would to accommodate your lifestyle, to accommodate your needs and desires that go contrary to the word of God. So the writer says, ah, but Jesus, the one that all these spiritual leaders are pointing to and what they were looking forward in the Old Testament was looking forward to, and now those in the New Testament have now experienced and have met, and we look forward as, to see Jesus once again. Remember, we must keep our eyes fixed upon him and him alone for eternity. And if you do, we saw here in, cha in, in chapter 13, we will love the brothers and sisters in the faith, verse 1. We will help strangers in verse 2. And we will even help the prisoners and those who are suffering in life, verse 3. We will live above our lust of our flesh. We see that in verse 4. We will go and overcome the covetousness that can, happen, that can hinder someone's life in verses 5 and 6. And now today in verse 9 we'll see one more. And that is not to be led astray by false doctrines that will come in and creep into the churches of today. We will see and continue here in chapter 13 here with verse 9. It says, now so the writer continues and says, do not be carried about with various, various and strange doctrines. For it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them, so the writer starts off here in verse 9 and continues with these, in, these um, words of, of exhortation or encouragement to you and I and to them at that time that don't get wrapped up. Don't get, 
You need to be established. You need to be solid on following Jesus and the the truths, the true doctrines here, what Jesus laid out for us. Make sure we stay focused on that because if you start creeping back into Judaism, you start going back into rituals and religiosity. And he, the writer writes, points out with foods like that, you have to eat certain foods, kosher foods and all these things to, to somehow you think you're pleasing God more. To go back into the law and to follow the law of the, of the Old Testament. No, we're in a New Testament. We're in a new covenant. We're, this is all about Jesus. It's not about religiosity and uh, those forms of religiosity at one point. But the writer says, there's never a shortage of various or strange doctrines in the church. There's always something coming in, a twist away from the true doctrine. Things that we, you see in the Bible, but they just do a little slight test or a slight twist. It's always 99% pretty accurate. You can find here, it's the 1% that takes you off course. And what the writer is saying here is you can easily get off course if you find yourself going and following and looking for these tickling of your ear, finding things that kind of want to fit your lifestyle or fit your kind of mindset or way you think. And you start looking for people who've taken the scripture and just slightly twisted it so that you will follow them. Not follow Jesus. Follow Jesus and follow me. (laughs) Follow what I'm telling you. And buy my books. (laughs) Send me money. You know. It's so subtle, but so prevalent. And it happened within less than 30 years, creeping into the churches even after Jesus left, when the first church started. It didn't take long for for false teachers to creep in. But he says here to them, the one specifically in mind here seems to deal with the, the mosaic ceremonies and laws that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That because of Jesus and what he's done on the cross, it's fulfilled all the law. It's no longer do you need to do those, uh, those ceremonies and those laws like eating those special foods. Why? Because the writer says they were not profitable then to you. They're certainly not going to be profitable now to you with Jesus fulfilling the law. So many people will sit there and only look at the Old Testament and how God worked with his people and had this skewed version of what the Bible says. But God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, forever. So some people say, I wish the Old Testament God would come out and really do the work. Well, it's the same God. What are you talking about here? You just obviously don't know the Old Testament. You don't, you don't know God because you wouldn't make those statements Because God's character never changes. you got to get that solid in your head as a Christian. So, what happens was, is these believers were getting what? The writer says that you have been occupied. Occupied means you've been busy. You've been preoccupied, you've been really focused on something very specific and not the total understanding of the words of God's word. So if you just hone in on one little thing and just kind of focus in on that, and it's so easy. Some people can look at just end time stuff and never study the rest of the scripture. Some can get focused in on, on uh, serum, you know, how do you worship God, right? And then just very they really just really twist it. And you can find people will take you off on tangents, little squirrel moments. And then you'll get skewed on really what the scripture and the character of God is. Some, some churches today only teach the New Testament and never the Old Testament. There are some churches only teach the Old Testament and really don't want you to get into the New Testament too much. Some just walk away from the word of God altogether. And they don't open up the word of God. They go back to creeds and they go back to little t- old, you know, um, old teachings and old writings from godly men, but they do not study the Word of God. They'll study a commentary or some writer and some popular guy today, but they do not study the Word of God. 
So people say, how do you get wrapped up into these strange doctrines and these various doctrines? Because you're reading the books of men or women who are writing their own books, and you are passing those books around, reading those books, and think that is gospel, and you never open up the word of God. The word, if that speaks to you today, that, that is what it's referring to them back then. They didn't have books, but they were listening to the preachers coming through the towns. They were listening to those sharing with other people. No, 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 my brothers and sisters, don't get deceived. Stay focused on the word of God. Stay in the word of God. Understand the word of God, and you will not get deceived. That is a warning for you, for all of us. Because it, it is good that our heart be established by grace and not by the law. That's what the writer here. Our hearts will only be established by grace. We are established by an over or an understanding and appropriation of God's undeserved approval for you and I. Not because we've kept some rules and list of rules and regulations and do's and don'ts. That is not grace. Grace is based, our, our approval to God is based on our belief in who Jesus Christ is and what he's done on the cross for us. And we live our life for him because of what he's done for us. Not with foods. See, this purpose of a spiritual ministry, such as the one here at Calvary Chapel, North Country, is to establish God's people in grace. So that you and I will not be blown around by dangerous doctrines that come through the, through the different churches, through the world. We see that as a warning in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 14. But also important, we stick with the word of God. Teaching the whole counsel of his word. Why? Because that is the foundation of the church, is his word. Not on past history of rituals and customs. Bible doctrine is the source of our strength and our ability to grow in the church. Don't get occupied. Busy and occupied with the various and strange doctrines that keep coming through. Remember, on the cross, Jesus didn't say on the cross to be continued. To be continued. Okay, just hold on, I'll tell you more. To be continued. If that was true, that's why we had the false, uh, false churches out there, like the Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses and all those, because they've received new revelation from the things of God. No, he said on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. No longer do you do sacrifices to somehow get right with God. Self-effort opportunities to get right with God or works of the flesh. I need to work, work, work and do more things for God so he's pleased with me. You're, that's work mentality. That is a law-driven religiosity. That is a strange doctrine when you get wrapped up into those things of legalism. Stay away from doctrines based on rules and rituals and meats and sacrifices. Instead, we must stay very focused on our walk with our Lord Jesus Christ based on grace. We must, you must daily focus and your understanding. He continues in verse 10, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. So the writer here says the other Jews were probably branded by these Jewish 
Christians as illegitimate. You're not even, you're illegitimate. You don't even be around. You can't come to the temple. You can't do anything. We don't want you anywhere near us because you have walked away and followed this Jesus. And because they did not continue the Levitical system that the Jewish system is based upon, we find that the writer to the Hebrews insisted that they have an altar. Even though they won't let you come into the temple to the altar, you have your own altar, or your own altar because you follow Jesus. What is that altar? The cross. You don't have to go into the temple to meet with God you can meet with God anywhere because it was a finished work on the cross. That is our altar. So the, the writer here is encouraging them, you haven't lost out. You can come to the foot of Jesus. You can come to the cross anytime, anywhere, any place, and cry out and have a personal relationship with Christ. The veil was ripped from top to bottom in the temple as it is. There's no more temple. It's gone. And those Jewish, those Jewish people, those who are purely Jewish, those who are following the rituals and going to the temple, and going, they can't come to the, they can't. They can't. Because they haven't given their life to Jesus. Essentially, the, our altar is the cross. It's, it's the centerpiece of the Christian gospel and our understanding. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And read verses 18 through 24. I'll just take one of them. Verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Our power is in the cross. And what Jesus has done on that cross. If you go back and read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, very essential verses there. But verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, For I determined not to know anything among you except who? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's what Paul's saying here. I know a lot of things, and he knew the law inside and out. He knew all the rituals. He did it. He led people through all the rules and rituals and, and making sure they were following everything to a team, including what you eat and didn't eat, and, and the Sabbaths and all these things. He says, all of that is nothing. It is all now, it's all about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And it is true for us today. God coming in the flesh to take on the sin of the world, your sin and my sin, and just being done with it. Dealing with all of it. And for those of us who believe in who Jesus Christ is and what he's done on that finished work of the cross, that belief will cause you to be regenerated, born again, and the Spirit of God will come in, in you and seal you for eternity because you believe, you trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Your life will be changed. If you're sitting here today and you haven't done that, today give your life to Jesus. Trust in the Savior of the world and what he's done for you. Verse 12, the writer continues, says, Therefore, based on what he just was writing, therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. So he, the writer here is dealing with these Jewish believers that struggle of going back to Judaism versus staying on track with Jesus and trying to do this quasi-mixture kind of deal. He says, okay, let's deal with this one last thing of exhortation here. You have an altar. It's the cross. You don't need to go to the temple and go to that altar. Now, you went to the altar because there's a sprinkling of blood from the sacrifices of animals, and you're thinking that you need that again. No, 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 you don't need that. You have Jesus, who is our sacrifice, who on the cross, it was his blood that was poured out to cover and take care of sin. No animals anymore. It is purely Jesus' blood, and he's taking care of it. You don't have to today go sacrifice animals and all these, and you have to sacrifice your life in some way to have your blood poured out somehow. No, Jesus did it all. And you get to rest in that. 
So he's bringing them back to Leviticus 14. He's bringing them back to Leviticus chapter 16. He's bringing them back to Exodus chapter 29. These Levitical laws, he's saying, that has all been dealt with with Jesus of the cross. But those three key Old Testament passages speak of sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement for the cleansing of leprosy, which we see leprosy in the scriptures being what? Sin. He was dealt with that leprosy. It was also the consecration of priesthood was all taken care of that through those sacrifices. And if you remember, if you understand and been studied, you studied with us at Leviticus on Wednesday nights, you know that that sacrifice was taken outside of the camp where it was unclean. That was where it was supposed to be taken. So the writer takes that knowledge of the Old Testament, brings it to light and says, wait a minute. He's going to be sacrificed for the people of his own blood suffered outside of the gate. Why is that important? Because Jesus was sacrificed outside the gate. When he hung on that cross, it was outside of the gates of Jerusalem. Outside that temple gates. Outside. Because he was it was unclean. No one went there. You didn't go there. That's where sin is. That's where you know, all the sins that had to be dealt with, like leprosy and all those things. These things are here. So Jesus left the temple, left the city, left all the traditions, left all the regulations, left all the priestly robes, left all the fragrant incense that was burned for their, their, during their ceremonies. They had to have incense and sprinkling of water and all these different rituals and regulations and things they had to follow. Jesus left that all and went outside of the gate. And he went outside the gate to the hill called Calvary, Golgotha. And that's where he was slain. Jesus suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp. And what does the writer say here in verse 13? Bearing his reproach. If our Savior was rejected in his sacrifice, which was performed on the cross at Calvary, our altar was branded illegitimate. We expect no better or nothing new when we follow Jesus. Identifying with Jesus often means that we're going to bear his reproach, reproach like he bared his. As you follow Jesus, don't be surprised. They want you outside the camp. Like they say, get outside the camp where it's unclean and it's evil, they must get out. And these believers at this time, the writer's saying, we, I understand what you're dealing with. I know that they're ostracizing you. They're telling you to get outside the camp. Get away from them. Because you chose to follow Jesus versus the rituals, the law. But let me, let me, let me say it this way. What is the world's camp? What does it mean to be in the world's camp or you're, out, or you're outside of the world's camp today? If you dwell with the wicked, if you can live as they live and be real close with ungodly people like there's an intimate relationship with if you if they you you practice what they practice go where they go do what they do if their pleasures are your pleasures today then you have to understand their god is your god 
You are one of them. There is no being a Christian without being shut out of the world's camp. When you are truly a Christian and following God, the world is going to shut you out of their camp. And this is not a bad thing. This is a very good thing. Because you will not be doing the evil that the world is doing. You will not live in the pleasures of the world that are living. And you will not be distracted by the things of this world. You will have a biblical worldview. And you will live for Jesus and not for yourselves and not for anyone else. And there will be such a peace and such a joy (laughs) that you will have because there will be wars and rumors of wars, there'll be pestilence, there's going to be an increase in earthquakes and natural disasters like we've never seen before, and we'll call it climate change, how's that? And when you see these things happen, we don't fear these things, do we? Because the Bible tells us these things will happen, and it's the season that we will see when we know that our Lord and Savior is coming back for his bride. And if you're a Christian, you're part of the, you're a bride. You're part of the bride, part of the body. Verse 14, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. So the, the difficult job of bearing his reproach is easier when we remember that word again. Remember that the city or society we are cast out from is only temporary. It's only temporary because we seek and belong to a permanent city yet to come. It's Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, that we were singing. Were you understanding what you meant when you were singing those words? Oh, new Jerusalem. This is the city that we're looking forward to to dwell with our Lord and Savior. There's nothing in this world today that is of anything that is permanent. It's all temporary. And once you understand, in bearing his reproach, we face great difficulty and suffering. Yes, we understand that, but he's going to hold us through all of that. The good news is that those for those who bear his reproach, this world is the worst that we will ever see. This is the worst we will ever see. For cowards, they will turn back away from Jesus and that life, and that life, what God wants for them. But no, but we, if you just stay absolute uh, focused on Jesus and go through the test after test after test, what joy and peace you will experience in your life. And that's why he says he gives two spiritual sacrifices in verses 15 to 16. He says, therefore, so based on that truth, therefore, by him, who's him? Jesus Christ. Let us continually, not not once in a while, not when I feel like it. No, no. Continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Verse 16, but do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So he brings, the writer brings here, therefore, based on all of this, you have an altar the cross. It's, it was Jesus' blood that has been sacrificed, not some animal. Jesus' blood is permanent. Animal sacrifice was temporary. That's why they had to go back every day and once a year and all these festivals. No, no, Jesus' blood is permanent, not temporary. Our cross is complete work, not a temporary work. So he's trying to encourage him to stay focused on Jesus, not religiosity. And when you do that, understand there's a sacrifice of what our, what's our sacrifice? Right here he gives us two. Praise, the sacrifice of praise to God. And the fruit of our lips. The writer to the Hebrews explains, I mean, several things here, right? Look at praise that pleases God is what? It's offered by him. He is the one that's bringing the offering. He actually gives you the offering. You don't have to come up with something. It's 
offered by him, by Jesus Christ on the ground of his righteousness. And it pleases God the Father because he is the one bringing the righteousness for us to be able to worship him. Apart from his righteousness, we're doomed. But because of his righteousness, we inherit everything. We're a child of God. Praise that pleases God is offered continually. Not just Sundays. Praising God is a daily throughout the day, is worshiping and praising God. You must grow and mature in our faith to where that is real to you. It's pleasing to our Heavenly Father when we praise Him throughout continually. Praise that pleases God is a sacrifice of praise that may costly, it might be costly, it might be inconvenient, but it is a blessing and a pleasing to our Heavenly Father if we do it. Praise that pleases God is the fruit of our lips. More than just thoughts directed towards God, it is spoken out loud. It must come from the fruit of the lips. It's not just in the head, but it's also verbally expressed. Because what comes out of the mouth is from the heart. And the heart is a heart of praising God that will please God. It must be the words coming out of your mouth must be pleasing. It must be a a praising of who God is. Do you love God? Yes. How many times have you been at work? And weeks and months and years have passed by that person you worked with five days a week Week after week after week after week, and then all of a sudden you find out you're a Christian? I've been talking about God. You have said nothing to me to indicate that you even love or praise God. Or I, There's not. You're shocked. It's even worse when someone says it to you. You're a Christian? I've been working alongside you for quite some time. I... I would never have heard anything come out of your mouth to indicate. That's the, those are sobering moments, are they not? Are they moments that just, ooh, I, I, Lord, I have got to get deeper in my relationship with you because if I am not able to express out of my words, out of my, I talk about a lot of things. And you mean I don't talk about you who should be number one in my life? Oh, my brothers and sisters, that's not condemnation, that's just encouragement. Understand how important it is. The fruit of our lips is a praise, is pleasing to our Heavenly Father. How easy it is for the suffering saints, you and I, to complain. Oh, how easy it is for us to complain to everybody. But how important it is for us to give thanks to God in His name. But the writer here says not only are we to Sacrifice of praise to God and the fruit of what comes off of our lips and fruit of our lips, and but we're to give thanks to his name. But we also don't forget to do good and to share. Don't forget to do good and, and share. That pleases our Heavenly Father when we do good and, and we share. Praise and worship are important for the Christians to grow and to mature. It really is. This would certainly include hospitality that was mentioned by the writer in verse 2. It was also when we talked about the writer in verse 3 about going and going to places of people like prisoners and those who are suffering and going and doing good and, and not only doing good, but to just really to share to those who are in need in those difficult situations they find themselves in. But doing good can cover a multitude of ministries. Because like, how do I do good? Well, you know, we have the Father's Bakers. They love to do good things and share good food for us in our time of fellowship. 
The Father's builders loves to go fix things that are God's resources and help people who are in need for physical issues and go out and fix it and, and, and make something new to make sure it takes care of these people. These are good things. They're sharing. These things pleases God. Not because we have to, but because we get to. And now the writer reminds the, the, the readers here in verse 17, once again here, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So the writer here once again says we are to be submissive to the leaders, spiritual leaders over the church or over them that are feeding them the word of God, that are teaching them the word of God, helping them to understand the word of God and help them to live by faith. That with that position that God has raised up those spiritual leaders, those elders, those pastors to minister to you, there's a role and responsibilities there with it to just be, listen, be willing to listen. They're not, spiritual leaders are not to be a dictator over people's lives. That is crazy. That happens. There was movements where everyone says, I can't make a decision unless I talk to my pastor and the pastor makes that decision of what I need to do. That's insane. That's insane. Pastors are not supposed to be dictators over your life. He is to be a shepherd, we see in the scripture, who goes before you and leads you the, 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 down the way of following Jesus. They're called to feed the sheep. They're called to encourage and to protect and to watch over and keep them from watching the wolves, these wolves that come with false, strange, various doctrines and, and warnings. And Oh, if you keep doing that, you get too close, you're going to get yourself in trouble. You're going to go over the cliff. I'm telling you, you've been, been down there once before and I went and came and got you and pulled you back out and got you back in the fellowship. How many times do you want to go over the cliff? Okay, we'll go and get you again. So the writer says, when speaking on the authority of God's word, leaders do not have a role to feed, has this role to feed us, but, but to encourage them to live, to live biblically and walk after God, to have a biblical worldview about things. And when a leader does that, there's this, this, this accountability to, to kind of obey and, and to submit to your leaders. Because what you're doing is, is when you say, I don't believe you. I, I, I'm just telling you what the word of God tells you. So if, you're, if I'm telling you the word of God and you don't want to listen, you're technically not obeying me. You're, not, you're technically not willing to be submissive to what God is show, having me show you. But I'm only showing you the word of God. I'm not giving you the opinions of me. I'm not giving you a worldview. I'm not giving you someone else's psychobabble to tell you what to do. I'm just telling you what the, the authority of God's word says. And he's raised me up. He's brought you into the fellowship. And I am here to teach you and feed you and encourage you to walk by faith and not by sight. And your eyes are focused on what? Who? Jesus. So when the writer sits here, you need to obey and, and be submissive. All he's saying is, these spiritual leaders represent me. And I raise them up to help and encourage you to learn how to, to grow and mature in your faith. So you're not really going against me. You're really going against God. Because I'm just telling you what God's word says. You're the one who's being rebellious and stiff-necked. And there's consequences with that. Because the writer says, and kind of, I, I, I kind of like this. I, I, really, I really like this writer for a couple of key reasons. And one of them is this one right here. He says to the, the believers, the reason why I want you to obey them and kind of be, be submissive to them, and, because they watch out for their, your souls. Your souls. 
Pastors are personally involved in anyone and everyone, regardless of age. I am committed to your soul, to your feelings and emotions and what drives you. I want the best for you. Do I want you to not live in peace? No, I want you to live in peace. Do I want you to have God's joy? Yes, I want you to have God's experience, God's joy. So what I'm going to do is, as long as the Holy Spirit allows and empowers me to, to have involvement with you, to help you, to encourage you, to live God's way so you can experience that, I am supposed to pour out my life for you. I'm to pour out my life for you. Look what the writer says. Because I am going to give account to God Almighty for what I've done with his people he's brought. I take that very seriously. That's why I don't, I don't sugarcoat things. I don't give you cotton candy when I know you need meat. And I don't make you feel all loving goosey bumps and laugh and joke all the time when it's serious matters that you're dealing with. Why? Because look at he says here at the very end of verse 17. Let them do so with joy. You know what brings the most joy to me? We see it in 3 John. When I hear that my children are in the word of God, living after the word of God, following Jesus, and just God working through. There's no greater joy than me to hear that, to see your growth and maturity. Go from someone who was a heathen, gets saved, and then grows and matures, and God uses in serving other, ministering to other people. That is an incredible joy for me. And look also, and, it, and not with grief. Because I can also tell you, <laughs> you have, if you've never been in this role, you have no idea the weight of grief that comes upon a pastor to watch someone walk away from God and go back or live a cardinal life. There is no greater grief and weight that comes. Because you just want it more for them than they want it for themselves. And it is so grieving. And the writer ends that verse 17, that part that says, but just understand, it's unprofitable for you to walk away. It's unprofitable for you to disobey and not be submissive. And listen to what a godly man that God's raised up and is sharing the word of God it is very unprofitable for you to, to turn your ears off and to walk away and dis, dis, separate yourself from who God is using in your life to help you mature. That is very unprofitable for you. So the writer is saying that to him, and I think that's encouraging because I'm sure during those days, can you imagine being the pastor of this congregation and you've got these people who are just coming to Jesus and they're loving Jesus. It's like they have this freedom and grace and all of a sudden they're getting persecuted because they're following Jesus and now they're talking about, no, nah, I think I'm going to go back to the old life. No, I think I'm going to just go over and play with a little Jesus and a little bit of law and so I can get accepted back in the temple and accepted back to the, to the Passovers and accepted over here and be able to have you know family gatherings i'm gonna just i'm i'm i'm, I'm okay I still i still know jesus but I, i'm gonna play over it's unprofitable so the writer's saying to them just obey and be submissive just stay focused why because this man is following jesus who is the same yesterday today and forevermore you're on the right track Verse 18, he concludes his remarks here. And he says, pray for us, 
For we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things deserving to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. How important these verses are. He's saying, this writer is saying to them, please pray for us. He's humbly saying, I need your prayer. It's so important. I need your prayer. Please intercede with God on our behalf. Why? Because we are confident that we have a good conscience. Everything we've been sharing to you, everything we've been teaching you, everything that we have I've been living our lives to represent, I, we have good conscience. There is nothing. We know we're living for God. There is nothing we have to repent of in our life that you see that you would cause you to stray from left or right from Jesus. So he says, we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. But notice this here in verse 19. But I especially urge you to do this. That I may be restored to you the sooner. The writer understood the power of prayer. He knew without a shadow of a doubt. That by his people that he knew and they knew him. If they would pray. He knew that God would allow him to come see them sooner than later. That's power. Do you want things to happen in your life? Do you pray with the earnest like the writer here does? That by prayer that you could, that you could petition, you could intercede for that, that, that son and daughter who walked away from the faith and you're praying for them that they would come back to Jesus sooner? That someone who is sick that you could go and pray and ask God to heal this person sooner? Go down the list of what's happening in your life. Have you gone to God and asked people to pray for you for a particular situation to help you, to, that God would understand that maybe something would happen sooner? The writer knew the power of prayer. He knew who you're going to, the God Almighty who sees all things and knows all things and is all present. The grammar in the ancient Greek language here for pray is a present imperative verb tense, which means he understood that they were already continuously praying for him. These people knew who this writer was, and that writer knew them, and he understands that they are already praying, and he says, continue. It's like 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. Ceasing, because I know that power of prayer that I could actually come to see you sooner. Why? Because his relationship was not an organizational relationship with these people. People come and go out of an organization. No big deal. No, no. His relationship with these people was a, a personal, a, 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 a love for these people. He didn't want these people to just come and go like an organization. He wanted these people as like a family. He wanted to minister to them. And he wanted to be there in person, not from a distance. And that's why he asked humbly, please pray and continue to pray. Verse 20 and 21, very powerful verses. And now may the God of peace. Who, where's peace from? God. God. You want peace in your life? It comes from God. God's God of peace doesn't come from anywhere else. Who notice this key words because there's nowhere else in the rest of Hebrews this talks about the resurrection except here in verse 20. God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus our Lord Jesus from the dead. So the only time you see in the entire book of Hebrews about the resurrection of Jesus clearly is right here in verse 20. That great shepherd talking about his role as the great shepherd to minister to the sheep, you and I. Uh, the shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, that new covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you that is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And he ends with what? Amen. So be it complete, right? So this wonderful benediction here in verses 20 and 21 captures 
absolutely almost all the themes we kind of talked about through the, of, the, of the book of Hebrews. It talked about peace. It talked about the blood, the covenant, the new covenant, the resurrection, the shepherd, the role of the pastoral ministering to the people, the equipping of the people. All these major themes are all caught right here in this one one moment here of, 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 of writing. And the writer expresses this confidence in one person, and that is the Lord Jesus and no one else. Not in himself, not in his abilities, not in any other pastoral abilities or any other pastors or somewhere else. No, it was all about Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the new covenant, the one who brings that grace to you and I and our ability to do that. It really speaks to Numbers chapter 6. If you've been following us along with, uh, in Numbers as well, verses 22 and through 27. The Lord bless you and keep you, and the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. We see it in the Old Testament, we see it in the New Testament about God's peace and about God's grace. And we see of God doing this work in people's lives. We must understand where there's no Christ, there is no peace. You, you distance yourself from intimately speaking and talking and, and seeking after the, Jesus and the word of God, you will not experience peace as a believer. You will not as a non-believer because you don't have Christ. Because one of the things that we must understand, and especially when we see the things that are going around the world, you have to understand that the world's peace is, is relative. It's short-lived. It's brief. Why? Because it is grounded in circumstances. Let me say that again. The reason why the world will not experience peace because it's based upon circumstances. It's based on short-lived relative things that are happening at that moment. God's peace is completely different. God's peace is absolute and eternal because it is grounded in His grace. It's grounded in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's that is once you understand that, you will experience the peace and the joy that we're talking about. And so when circumstances happen, the pipes burst in your house, the, the dog won't... Yeah, I won't go off track because I need to wrap up here. But you can't live by circumstances. You must keep your eyes, my brothers and sisters, on the finished work of his grace. And when these circumstances happen, you will, you will have a peace of God that will pass your, own, pass your understanding. It will just bring you through those circumstances. And you will not be swayed. You will be solidly brought through those moments, those dark valleys that you find yourself in that God has allowed but how important that we understand that. Because it brings us to that everlasting covenant. It makes you complete, as this scripture here in verse 21, make you complete in every good work to do his will. What's that word complete? It means perfect. Make you perfect in every good work. It's an expression that desire, that blessing, wanting God's working in and through your life and how according to his purpose and plan through the finished work of Jesus Christ, because if apart from that, you can't do it. The word complete or perfect is translated in the Greek word is katatizo. It means to set a broken leg. As a, a nurse background, I, I love this, this, this word here because it is a, it's, it's a set a broken bone. And I remember many times coming in when a patient comes in and I'm having to set the bone and, and help them and make that all happen and work because of such pain and suffering that is going on from that brokenness. A fisherman uses that same word here for a means to mend the broken net, Matthew 4.21. A soldier, that word is used also, it means to equip, to equip an army 
army for battle. It also means a sailor who is about to go on a voyage. That same word is used to, to make sure they have the appropriate stuff on the ship to be able to set voyage. All those words and those situations are the same Greek word, katatarzio, and it means to set properly. And I always found that word very, very important because I come across many broken lives. And these broken lives need to be set properly. If you want it to set properly and then to grow and not to bring about the pain and the suffering from an unpropered healing of a bone. It needs to be set properly, and the only one who can set it properly is by the grace of God. It's only by the work of Jesus in one's life that that broken bone can be set, that the army will be properly provided for and equipped to go into the spiritual battle. We must see that because the writer's really helping because our Savior in heaven wants to equip us for life on earth. He wants to prepare us for the life for eternal. He wants us to set the broken bone in our lives that allows us to walk straight with him, to walk, to run that race that he has set before us. If you're not, that brokenness is not fixed and set properly, you're not going to be able to run the race for him. You're going to struggle as a Christian. You're going to go find you give up and you're going to get frustrated and just stop and go back to where the, the back to the fin- the starting line and then start all over again and you're back in the old lust, lust and the old flesh and the old ways and the old thinking. You'll just go back because you'll get so frustrated you can't race. And that's what brings grief and difficulty to watch people's lives. He wants us to mature. He wants to mature us. And he can work in us and through us. And that pleases him. Because he knows it will accomplish his will. His good work. He has a plan and a purpose for your life. How does he equip us for that plan and purpose for our life? We see it in the scripture. I'll give it to you very quickly. Because if you take that Greek word catatardizo, and you track it through the New Testament, here's where you see it, where God uses that same word to bring tools to help you to to mature in your faith. We see that clearly in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, as he uses the word of God to set that broken bone, to equip you for that battle, to amend your net to go out to fish. To provide for you. Not only is the word of God, but also in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 3.10. Also in the fellowship of a local church. Ephesians 4 verses 11 and 12. And he also individual believers to equip them individually and mend them. We see that in Galatians 6.1. And finally, he also uses suffering in his children's life, he allows that suffering to come in to perfect his children. We studied that also in 1 Peter 5.10. By chastening us, by chastening us, we learn in chapter 12. That same word, to mend, to set that bone properly, to fix that net, to equip that army, to make sure that everything is ready for the voyage of your sailing of your life. It is through how, that's right where I just described. All of those things is what God is doing. If you heard me right, the word of God, prayer, and fellowship, all we see that in Acts 2.42. And that's what this church is based upon. And it's working in you. Why? Because he says, the writer says, so it will be well-pleasing. That well-pleasing word means acceptable in his sight. Everything he's doing will be acceptable in his sight if you do it his way. I find this as a sh- some of you who are taking notes. That word well-pleasing is only used nine times in the Greek in the New Testament. Eight of those times is only written by Paul in his other letters. 
The ninth one is here in this letter. Just as a little side note, even though we don't know 100% of who wrote this letter. To the, for those of you who are taking notes in studios, you got what I got, gave you. Lastly, I keep saying lastly, you know, I'm a pastor, I keep going. Verses 22 through 25, and I appeal to you. The writer says, I appeal to you. Brethren, bear with the word of exhortation. What is his final words? His final words of exhortations here? It says, for I have written to you in few words. Now you know why I love whoever this writer is. I love this person. Why? Because he's a man after my own heart. He says, after 13 chapters, that's just a few words. I'm the same way. It's only been an hour. I'm ready to go two more hours. These are just a few words I have. I have so much more I want to share with you. That's why I love this man. He says only a few words. No, they are brother Timothy. Ah, he has a relationship with Timothy. Another key clue. Has been set free. Oh, Timothy was locked up. Go back and do your research of where Timothy was locked up. But he'd been set free from something. Maybe it was jail, maybe it was something else. But he was been set free with whom I shall see if he comes shortly. Oh, this writer was hoping that Timothy would show up. Verse 24, greet all those who rule over you, all the pastors, all the leaders who are sharing and teaching you the word of God, greet all those uh, all of, over you and all the saints. That includes everybody else who's listening and watching and reading and listening, hearing this, the letter being read to them. I greet all of them and those from Italy greet you. Now, key word here. It just says from those, uh, for those from Italy greet you. We don't know where the writer is when he wrote this letter, if he's in Rome at this point in time, if he's somewhere else, but we just know that some people around him were from Italy. <laughs> That's all you know. You can't add more to that. They're just from people from Italy. They're around him, and he's letting them know, hey, they, they greet you. And lastly, but very important, verse 25, grace be with you all. Amen. One more thing as a, for those who are taking notes. This closure statement, grace be with you all, amen, is the only closing statement used by any other writer in all of the scriptures who? Paul. Just as a thought. But again, we don't know who the writer is, but I'm just saying, that when I see these patterns, you're just going to follow these patterns and I share those with you. But why can this writer say, be grace, grace be with you all? Because there's his final parting words to keep you focused on what? The grace of God. 